The summer that I was 10 years old, my mother got me a position as a page at the Wedgwood branch of the Fort Worth Public Library. The librarians knew me really well because my mother had been bringing me in every weekend for quite a while. I would come in with my little tote bag and fill it as full as I could and then go home and spend the rest of the week reading. I was kind of a weird kid and I didn't have many friends, but I had books. So getting to work at the library was like a dream come true because I loved that library with all the fervor that a 10 year old kid is capable of feeling. Now, keep in mind that this was the mid eighties. So there were no banks of computers or maker spaces for patrons. The library was just books, lots of books, wall to wall books. It was an older building, so the air was absolutely permeated with the smells of dust and old paper. The only noises were the squeaking thump of the book cart wheels, the dry squeal of the paperback books rack, the faint hum of the old microfiche machine, and the gentle murmur of the librarians at the circulation desk. It was a very warm and comfortable place that always felt like home. I never knew how it came about that I got to be a library page. I don't know if the librarian suggested it to my mother or if she asked them, but the reason didn't matter. All that really mattered was that I got to put on my pretty dress every Saturday morning and go to work. Given that I was only 10 years old, the work was obviously not strenuous. Mostly I got to stamp cards for the returned books and help the librarians as they wheeled book carts around the floor, putting returns back on the shelves. I felt so very busy and important, and I just loved it. I don't remember much from my childhood, but I do remember those summer Saturdays. I remember the feeling of being in that library, surrounded by what seemed an absolutely endless amount of stories. And no matter how many books I checked out each week, there were always more that I hadn't gotten to yet. The seemingly endless options presented a challenge that I was more than ready to accept, and there was no place I would rather be. Well, every book is here. All the books ever written, all the books never written, all the books of all the people who ever lived. Of course, I grew up, and some things changed. I have a much more expansive point of view about libraries now. I've seen what goes on behind the scenes, which has had an unavoidable effect on my perspective. But that warm, magical glow that libraries gave me when I was a kid is still inside me. In fact, I think that glow is still inside a lot of us, even if we don't realize it. I think that's why we create so much speculative fiction about mysterious libraries that contain all of the stories ever imagined. We want to be taken out of our lives, even if only for a little while, and slip into worlds that won't make any demands on us that we aren't prepared to face. We can choose our own adventure, and what's more magical than that? My name is Elizabeth Hedrick. I'm a PhD candidate in rhetoric at Texas Women's University, and you're listening to Anxiety in the Archives, my podcast dissertation. What were you doing in the library? I got lost. We're finally here, y'all. We have spelunked our way into the depths of the library, and we're ready to start opening up some of those vaults that we've been talking about. So the last three episodes have largely been me telling you what I intend to do with my dissertation and this podcast. 
But now we can finally move into the part where I actually do the things that I've been telling you about. After I tell you how these next 12 episodes will go. You know, shit like this is why people hate librarians. Basically, I'm doing three episodes on each of the four themes. As a reminder, those themes are libraries as infinite space, libraries as state authority, libraries as places of repression, and libraries as places of revolution. So in the first episode of each theme, we'll talk about how that theme relates to the books in question, as well as how that theme plays out in popular culture and in our own ideas. In the second episode of each theme, we'll pull in some theory and begin to analyze what we've been reading. And finally, the third episode of each theme will be where I tie all this information back to open access. My intention in structuring the podcast this way is to keep y'all and me from being overwhelmed with information dumps. And now, I give you an invitation to endless wonder. So the, okay, so right, so the notion of consumers who think of libraries and internet spaces is about like how many, like in their lifetime they could never read all of the stories, they could never appreciate all of the knowledge in there, they could never, you know what I mean, right? Libraries and archives and popular culture really are often represented as places of endless magic and wonder. You never know what you'll find if you should be so lucky as to enter one of these enormous spaces and you're filled with anticipation. It might be amazing, it could very well be incredibly dangerous, but it's also going to be awesome. In a 1986 article, Pamela Banting, a former research associate in the Department of Archives and Special Collections at the University of Manitoba, gives voice to this feeling of anticipation. When one enters the silent labyrinth of the archive, one encounters a radical surplus of the written over the spoken word. It is as if one were entering an ancient cave where pictographs had been incised on the cave walls. Speech has long since expired at the cave mouth. Those traces of speech which do survive the archive exist only in written transcript or on machine inscribed audio tapes that reproduce the voice all right, but it is a textual voice, the voice of the absence of presence that reaches the ear of the researcher. What Banting describes is the potential for discovery, where thoughts and ideas that have been long abandoned are waiting for us out there in a dark and dusty space somewhere. They are things that have been lost, but they still call out to us with their disembodied voices, hoping that they will be heard. We become textual archaeologists. We want to believe that these secret, silent archives and libraries are a treasure trove of documents containing stories that could be important for all of us. So while we don't know exactly what might be in there, we know that it has to be important because otherwise, why would it be hidden away? And the amount of secrets that these lost and hidden libraries and archives hold is only limited by the size of the structure. But even that may not always be a true limitation. For example, uh, TV shows like Warehouse 13 and The Librarians both contain spaces that are meant to grow with the needs of the collection. When discussing both Warehouse 13 and The Librarians, writer and literary scholar Michelle Anderbag expresses the idea that the beliefs we hold about 
both real-world libraries and the fiction we create about libraries has created a sort of palimpsest in which reality and fantasy are layered together, much like old documents that have been scraped clean in order to be used again. The original ideas can never really be removed and instead merged together, creating something new. Logically, we know libraries are supposed to be an accessible, democratic, social space. And the mythic element that we attach to them is based on this perception, but this perception also bleeds over and weaves fantasy elements into the real-world institution. It's a mixed-up crazy world, y'all. We hold so many ideas about libraries in our heads, it's not really that surprising that we would use fiction to turn them into sentient beings that can make choices about what they can hold and who belongs inside them. I don't send the invitations. The library does. The library sends the invitations. Authors have explored the concepts of fantastical libraries in speculative fiction many times over the last few decades. Uh, Teresa Villarino Picos, professor of literary theory and comparative literature, lays the credit for this at the feet of Jorge Luis Borges, the author of The Library of Babel, a short story about a mysterious library where the librarians are trapped and always searching for answers. The librarians are surrounded by books that they can't read, and so they create their own fictions about the space they inhabit. Borges's story, published in 1941, seems to have been the genesis for this kind of fantastical examinations of libraries and the multitudes that they contain. Now, communications professor Gary Radford argues that a consideration of the library as a particular kind of place has the potential to reveal much about the nature of the library experience. In my own recollections, that library I mentioned before, the Wedgwood Branch, was huge in my child-sized eyes. It was an endless temple of books, and it was glorious. My experiences in that library were always positive, and sometimes it was the only place I felt safe. I recently went back there after more than 30 years to see if it still evoked those same feelings from childhood, and y'all... Being back in that library was wild. I was definitely able to see how small that library actually is and always was. Maybe that's just because of my age, or maybe it's because there are so few bookshelves left. A good portion of the space was taken up with computer banks and other equipment for the community to use. I was no longer wandering down aisle after aisle of books. Even though it was smaller, and lacked the seemingly endless aisles of books that I remembered, it still stirred up all those old feelings. It still had the same smell, and it felt like it wrapped around me in the same way. While it may not be as vast as I remember, I can remember that feeling. I remember what it was like to walk in there and feel like I was passing into another dimension entirely. The inside's bigger than the outside? Yes. Of the four series that we'll be discussing, the two that exemplify this idea of libraries as places of infinite space are Genevieve Cogman's The Invisible Library series and A.J. Hackwith's Hell's Library series. Both of these authors have created libraries that are so massive, a person could very well get lost and never find their way out. Anyone who ventures into one of these libraries runs the risk of stumbling across books and artifacts that could destroy a person, or even destroy the world. 
Find me, please. Free me from this place. Cogman's protagonist is a junior librarian named Irene Winter who works for the Invisible Library. Now, if you're wondering why it's called the Invisible Library, well, that's because it's supposed to be invisible. It's essentially a covert organization that's intended to work behind the scenes, in theory, for the greater good. In actual practice, non-library folk have a tendency to find out about the library on a pretty regular basis due to missions that take wrong turns, and missions often take wrong turns, especially for Irene Winter. When we first meet her, she's undercover at a boy's prep school, and she's in the middle of stealing a book. Irene grabs the book and manages to duck her pursuers by running into the campus library. From there, she forces an entrance to the library by using magic, at which point we're given our first glimpse of the invisible library that sits at the center of a vast web of universes. High shelves rose on either side, too high and full of books for her to see what lay beyond. The narrow gap in front of her was barely wide enough to squeeze through. Her shoes left wet prints in the dust behind her, and she stepped over three sets of abandoned notes as she edged towards the lit area in the distance. As Irene creeps through the space, she eventually finds an open and well-lit area with computers that she can use to send intralibrary messages. She counts herself fortunate for this because using magic to force an emergency entry point into this library could have consequences. All you knew was that you'd end up in the library. Although there were horror stories about people who'd spent years finding their way back up from some of the catacombs where the really old data was stored. So... Kind of scary, right? But also exciting. This place is literally so huge that you can actually get lost and possibly die if you happen to enter the invisible library in the wrong place. Of course, that's not the only danger that can happen in service to the library, because junior librarians like Irene Winter don't spend too much time inside the library. Irene is a field agent, and her mission is to obtain rare and unique versions of books from any one of the thousands of universes that revolve around the library. And how does she accomplish this task? Well... Lying in subterfuge, mostly? I mean, it's basically some Library of Alexandria-level collection development policies. Basically, the field agents grab the original copies of the unique books, take them back to the Invisible Library, and send out copies of what they just stole to the people they stole them from. Yoink! 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 Anyway, we find out more about the library structure itself through Irene's short visits in which she delivers the books she's been sent to collect and checks in with her supervisor for new assignments. If she's lucky, she'll enter the library in a well-lit, well-known place. This is more likely to happen if the library has a permanent link to a particular world, which is strengthened by obtaining unique books from that world. This also serves to help keep the entire multiverse in balance, though this isn't a well-understood concept at the beginning of the series. The question of why some books were unique and occurred only in specific worlds was one of the great imponderables, and hopefully Irene would actually get an answer to it someday. Now, one of the double-edged swords that comes with the Invisible Library is the fact that most physiological processes stop 
due to alchemy that went into creating the library and binding the librarians to it. Librarians who agree to bind themselves to the library take their vows in a ceremony held in a dark room somewhere in the bowels of the library. Irene describes the actual branding as a sudden crashing flare of light that had brought her to her knees and carved a pattern across her shoulder blades. Thus branded, the librarians of the Invisible Library are protected from all manner of magical interference and they will stop aging while inside the library. Unfortunately, this also means that wounds can never heal inside the library and pregnancies can never come to term. They just kind of linger, which is just absolute nightmare fuel. It's been 84 years. So this universe balancing invisible library is a place that appears to have no real boundaries. It just keeps going mile after mile. There are places that are warm, comfortable, and inviting, and there are places that you do not want to go. There are maps, of course, to help librarians navigate, but that only helps if you haven't strayed into one of the many no-man's lands. The many different areas of the Invisible Library are described in a way that makes me think of lost and forgotten places that maybe aren't really lost after all. It's almost as if certain rooms and spaces, once they are no longer of use, just slipped out of one plane of existence and reappeared somewhere that they would be appreciated, or at least needed. Basically, they eventually wind up being assimilated into the invisible library, like a great big amorphous board cube, but filled with books and cozy nooks instead of cybernetic drone pods. Oh yes, there's the board reference. <laughs> Why are you glaring at me? <laughs> no board cube has anything cozy in it. <laughs> Engage. Cogman's library is a space of vasty depths that seem to go on forever, which plays back into that feeling of an endless space filled with stories that we sometimes feel when we're in real libraries. It's an exaggerated vision, of course, because real libraries can't possibly contain endless rooms filled with an uncountable number of unique stories, but the idea lives in our imaginations. I mean, we don't have access to all of the rooms in a real library, right? There are doors in real libraries that lead to places that patrons can't go. Hell, there's a door in my library where I work that I can't get into. None of us can. It's a forbidden door, but I'm probably not really supposed to say anything about that, so forget that I mentioned it. My point is that Genevieve Cogman's The Invisible Library series plays into the secret-filled places we want to believe exist in real libraries. A.J. Hackwitz's Hell's Library series, on the other hand, is a bit more complicated. But it's still just as awesome because it's actually an entire underworld library system, y'all. The focus is the wing that's located in Hell, which is the Unwritten Library. The Unwritten Library is guarded by its head librarian, who is, for all intents and purposes, dead and existing in a kind of purgatory by serving the library. The Unwritten Library is sentient in a way that the Invisible Library is not. As such, the Unwritten Library chooses the head librarian, 
which can be a real problem if the head librarian pisses off the library and the library chooses to take away the privileges that it has granted to the head librarian. Coffee's for closes only. So, the unwritten library contains every single piece of fiction that was ever thought up, but also never realized. All of the stories that people never completed or maybe never even started sleep in the unwritten wing. But sometimes they wake up. Books ran when they grew restless, when they grew unruly, or when they grew real. Regardless of the reason, when books ran, it was a librarian's duty to catch them. Basically, Claire provides over an uncountable amount of unwritten stories, and she has to make sure that they stay that way. If a book wakes up and its author is still alive, well, that could create a conflict. As Banting puts it when discussing the nature of archives and literature, the text spills over in excess of the author. The text is beyond control. It perpetuates itself as if it were the very life tissue of the author. The author has poured their energy, hopes, and dreams into this creation that, for whatever reason, they were never able to fully realize. But their passion and pain essentially creates what amounts to a tulpa, an independent thought form. And once the author has brought that story to life, well, that story wants to hold on to that life by any means necessary. When unwritten books get too wild, too loved, or just too hungry, they get in their fool heads to be real. They leak into the world, usually in the form of one of their characters. Now, Claire does have some exceptions in the form of the damsels. It's just a category, Claire said. Sometimes a book wakes up as a character with a reason to be dissatisfied with their story. No agency, flatly written, just another reward for the hero. They're pretty much the trope of the underdeveloped female character. However, not all the damsels are women. As Claire stated... The damsels exist as a reward for the hero, or even the MacGuffin that keeps the hero going. We interrupt our program to bring you this important message. In fiction, a MacGuffin is an object, device, or event that is necessary to the plot and the motivation of the characters, but insignificant, unimportant, or irrelevant in itself. The term was originated by Angus McPhail for film, adopted by Alfred Hitchcock, and later extended to a similar device in other fiction. The MacGuffin technique is common in films, especially thrillers. Usually the MacGuffin is revealed in the first act and thereafter declines in importance. It can reappear at the climax of the story, but may actually be forgotten by the end of the story. Multiple MacGuffins are sometimes derisively identified as plot coupons. Mystery MacGuffin, going on a hunt. And now back to your regularly scheduled program. Claire allows the damsels to stay awake only because their authors are long since dead. They have nowhere to go, and so the unwritten wing reorganized itself, based on an unspoken need, and gave the damsels a place to live and develop their own ideas and personalities. Now, if you'll notice, I keep calling it the unwritten wing. That's because that wing is just one of many, and only a few of them are in Hell. The other wing of the system that's located in Hell is the Arcane Wing, which houses objects that were incredibly powerful on Earth, and somehow fell through the cracks in reality, ending up in hell. And if you're wondering why the library is located in hell, well, that's kind of just where this particular ring was placed. In truth, they exist in a liminal space 
in that they do not serve hell, but they aren't exactly apart from it. This may not seem to make a whole lot of sense until you consider the idea that hell is just one of many mythological underworlds. As such, outside of hell, there are many more libraries to fill all of these different underworlds. Of course there are other libraries. The unwritten is just one wing, though one of the largest. There are wings of poetry, wings of songs, wings of dying words and visions. The libraries maintain a prickly kind of alliance separated by realms. If one library falls, it could signal the end for them all. The library stands together. The only exception to note is the Dust Wing, which houses all the works created and lost to time. But the less said about that dark hall, the better. The home base for the characters in the series, however, is in the Unwritten Wing. As the series progresses, we learn that, unlike the Invisible Library, which seems to shift to suit itself, the Unwritten Wing shifts to suit its librarian. The appearance, lighting, shelving, and decor will reflect the tastes and preferences of the head librarian. At a certain point, the library loses faith with Claire and her abilities as head librarian. And since the library is the one that chooses its librarian, the library chooses Claire's assistant Brevity to become head librarian in Claire's place. Under Brevity's watch, the unwritten wing changes its face to meet Brevity's needs and desires. The woods were stained a cherry color, and the brass workings of Claire's preference were gone. Instead, tiny little fairy lights raced up and down the vertical surfaces of the cavernous wing, lighting everything in a diffused kind of cheer. Instead of brass rails keeping books from falling off their shelves like jailers, delicate wood carvings hemmed each row, almost like picket fences making a garden of the books rather than a confinement. The unwritten wing was still as large and echoing as ever, but Brevity's influence on the library left it feeling almost soft around the edges. The unwritten wing knows what it wants, and it does its best to protect and serve its head librarian. And head librarians have incredibly long tenures due to them being dead and all. It can make for some weird and uncomfortable confrontations sometimes when the head librarian has to bargain with a sentient building. Stand down and let me do my job! Both Irene and Claire have dedicated themselves to institutions that protect the stories that they love so much, even to the detriment of their health, safety, and sanity. Through these actions, the reader is reminded of the importance of books and stories. We remember why we loved libraries in the first place. What is the first thing you think of when I say the word library? Library. I'm more getting an image. Okay, go ahead. It's traditional. I see books. I see um, a lot of of books. Um, Dark spaces. To me, it feels safe there. It's a little bit unused and dusty, and I think I think that's why I like it. I'm almost like you know, just kind of telling you what's in my vision here. This isn't what I think libraries should do or be for people, but. I think it's more, when, when you say library, the first thing I thought was a vision when I saw that, and it's an emotional connection because I feel safe in there because not a lot of people are in there. It's a place with an indefinite number of ideas and stories, and I can explore it without being um, hassled. 
Because libraries are more than just a building or a collection, right? Libraries hold infinite worlds inside them, but they are essentially containers for those worlds. Reading and understanding the worlds within the stories is important because stories like this can help us to create new and better stories set in newer and even more fantastical worlds, thus extending our imaginations and our ability to accept the impossible once we can perceive it. The use of fantastical libraries also allows for discussions about the nature of real libraries, who they're for, and why they exist. The speculative fiction versions are an exaggerated expression of our own questions about libraries, and y'all have to admit there are a whole lot of questions about libraries in real-world America right now. We'll get really in-depth about the rhetorical aspects of this in the next episode, because the rhetoric that is being employed against libraries and librarians almost feels as if it could have been pulled straight from any of these books. We need to understand that rhetoric in order to begin working against it, and these libraries, unreal as they may be, are a way to begin working through that. Libraries matter to our societal well-being. They stand as the primary institution of social inclusion and digital inclusion in most communities and some believe that they should be considered a human right. I believe that they should be considered a human right. And I hope that by the end of all of this, y'all will believe this as well if you don't already. Having said that, I don't want to discount the fact that speculative fiction also provides a valuable release valve from the increasingly bonkers facts of reality. Life is hard and weird and uncertain. So why not escape into places where the libraries go on forever and hold everything you could ever want to read? I mean, you might eventually get eaten by the thing that lives in the deep dark underneath. But hey, who really wants to live forever, right? You have your way of dealing with reality, and I have mine. Anxiety in the Archives is written, produced, and narrated by Elizabeth Hedrick. You can find episodes, transcripts, and references in the show notes or by visiting anxietyinthearchives.com. If you'd like to start a conversation with me about what you've heard, please feel free to find me on Twitter at archiveanxiety. The theme song for Anxiety in the Archives is Mind Control by Half Cocked. This song and all other episode music can be found on freemusicarchive.org. The cover art for Anxiety in the Archives was created by Matt Davis. This project couldn't have been born without the support of my committee, Gretchen Busel, Ashley Bender, and Dundee Lackey, who willingly ventured into unknown ground with me. I'd like to thank everyone that allowed me to interview them for this episode, including Woody and G-Love, and everyone who lent their voices to this episode and brought life to the books that I love, including Woody, Amber, Wren, Tom, Laura, Jarvis, Angelica, Selena, and Dante. I'd also like to thank Harvest House for always providing a safe port in the middle of my academic storm. And finally, thank you for listening. Please join me next time for episode five, The Library as Infinite Space, part two. <laughs>